Hey, welcome to Bullpen Sessions, where you will learn the lessons from the athletes excelling at the highest level so you can take these same lessons and apply them to your sport, business, and life. My name is Andy Neary, and each week I sit down with current and former pro athletes and other professionals tied to the sports world where we dive into the mindset of those athletes excelling at the highest level, teaching you lessons you can apply so you can have massive success in your sport, business, and life. So do me a favor, grab your glove, grab a ball, take the mound, because you are about to strike out those limiting beliefs that have been holding you back for oh so long. Here we go. Hey, welcome back to Bullpen Sessions. I'm excited this week to sit down with Chris Worth. Who is Chris? Chris is the founder of No Quit Living, a speaking, coaching, and training company dedicated to building stronger teams within organizations. He's also the host of the No Quit Living podcast, which is a top 50 business podcast on iTunes. He also is the author of The Positivity Tribe as well as a former basketball coach. He coached at the AAU level, the high school level, and even some college basketball. So this episode is filled with so, so many golden nuggets. We talk about his life growing up playing the sports of basketball and tennis and how that led to him uh, landing as a, as a coach on the basketball court and the lessons he learned from coaching both young men, both middle school age kids to young men in college and how he now applies that same concept to his coaching in the boardroom. And that is where the conversation goes in a direction I didn't predict, but I was so excited it did because we talked about what it takes for winning teams. What are secret formulas for the winning teams today? It's not just talent. It's not just about going out and finding the studs, the all-stars. We talk about how many teams in sports could have been a much bigger dynasty than they were. They looked so good on paper. Behind the scenes, they were kind of a shit show. And so we get into that as well. There's even a minute bowl reference in this episode. So if you are a diehard basketball fan, you're going to love this. If you're an athlete, current and former, you're a parent of, uh, of an athlete, or you're an executive in the business world trying to build a stronger team, this episode is for you. So tune in, take a bunch of notes. You're going to love Chris. You're going to love his message. And I was just excited to have him on. All right, here we go. Shift your mindset. All right. Welcome back. I am super excited for this episode. I have got with me Chris Worth. Chris is the founder of No Quit Living, a speaking, coaching, and training company. He is also the host of the No Quit Living podcast. He is the author of The Positivity Tribe. And I am excited to have him because this guy is not only helping businesses kick ass today. At one time, he helped athletes kick ass on the basketball court. Chris, welcome aboard. I appreciate the opportunity to be here. So as I always love doing, Chris, let's level set right out of the gate for the listeners who may not know who Chris Worth is. Just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, what makes you tick. I enjoy long walks on the beach. <laughs> no, I, uh, I appreciate the opportunity. And I do the similar thing on my shows. I think it's, it's super cliche when somebody reads like a seven paragraph introduction. But I grew up in the Northeast in Westchester County, New York, and I played basketball and tennis in college, Division three, And I had the opportunity to coach AAU high school and college basketball for a couple of years. And one of the things that I really enjoyed doing prior to getting into No Quit Living was working with athletes during the summer and their off seasons. Cause that's when you get a chance to really 
get into the improvements where, you know, during this season, it's, as you know, it's very difficult to make adjustments. You're kind of just, you know, tinkering things a little bit. And I really enjoy working with athletes both on and off the court or field, because that's where I think you can really help them have a positive impact in their season and also their career. Oh, that's awesome. And so I'm curious, like right out of the gate, my sports brain goes here. I'm like, man, basketball and tennis, like that's not the most common combination of sports one would you would hear one play like in high school right you always thought football basketball baseball what was it were there any skills i'm curious any skill sets that you had you know you applied on the basketball court that applied on the tennis court yeah you know just a short backstory that i played basketball football and baseball growing up but i also played tennis at a pretty high level in the club um kind of division where i grew up and i played at the Yvonne Lendl Tennis Center. He's a, Yvonne Lendl's a former um, Grand Slam champion. And I really enjoyed it. And I went to college to play basketball and I was playing basketball in college. And my girlfriend at the time wanted to play tennis. And I, co- I coached tennis when I was in, in high school and college in the summers. It was something easy to do. But I was just hitting with her and then she hit me some balls and I was just you know hitting back. And this kid came up to me and said, hey, would you want to play a set tomorrow morning? And I said, sure, no problem. I thought he, I thought he was just a kid. What I didn't know at the time was he was the assistant tennis coach and I ended up beating him uh, pretty easily uh, the next morning. And he came up to me and said, you know, would you consider playing tennis? And I was like, oh, like like tomorrow, you know, he said, no, like for the team. And I was like, wait, what? And um, so I ended up, in essence, walking on the team. But to answer your question, the the similarities are are there's a lot of similarities with the movement. There's a lot of similarities, both individually playing singles but also when you play doubles as a team but for me the the movement of basketball and tennis are are very similar in the sense of it's the quick quick pace you know back to back you know uh you could go up and down the court in basketball for two minutes three minutes in tennis you could have you know 30 or 40 shot rally and you also could have you know just that quick quick foul uh, in basketball and the point could be over in tennis but you get back to it and you keep going and and i think for me you know, I played baseball at a high level growing up and I was a catcher and I just, I hated how slow baseball was and, you know, you're just getting into it. So I think that, that for me, just the speed of it and that similarity is probably the most, most important thing that really hit me with why I like both of them. Well, now I got a dovetail question off of that in a second, but I, you, you made my brain go back 30 years. <laughs> you you grew up in Connecticut, right? Uh, West, yep. West, I, I believe are roughly the same age and I remember playing AAU baseball growing up there was a team out of New England that was so dang good it was called the New England Mariners any and that name ring a bell I've heard of them yeah okay I just remember we had to play them one year at an AAU national tournament now these this team was drawing the best kids from Maine Massachusetts Connecticut Rhode Island I'm like that is a stacked team in fact I think a couple guys that we played against ended up going on and playing some pro ball now, here's my question, because I, I struggled with this. So myself, too, Chris, growing up, I played football, basketball, baseball, your, your traditional sports. And then when I grew, got out of high school, I got into some individual sports like triathlon. And it was actually a really – it was at, at first a hard shift for me mentally. Where do you see the differences? Like when you were playing basketball, very much a team sport, right? You have to flow in sync with your teammates on the court. You have to have spacing. You have to have know where guys are. In tennis, if you're not playing doubles, you're playing singles. It is a one-on-one sport. Did you notice playing that versus basketball a big shift mentally on how you had to prepare because it was more of an individual sport? Yeah, you know what? That's a really, really interesting question. And 
it was not so much just the preparation, but it was also for me the idea of when you're playing tennis, it's just you. And not that you want to make excuses or you want to make errors in, on the basketball court. But, you know, for example, being a point guard, if I missed my assignment and my guy, my guy got behind me, I knew that one of the four other defenders on my team were likely going to step up. You know, in tennis, if you're, you know, come to the net and all of a sudden you get passed, you know, you can't turn around and just be like, all right, someone else is going to get it. But, but it's, it's a much different mental perspective. And for me, the difference more so than anything between the two sports is you have time in tennis to talk to and listen to yourself, Mm. where in basketball you don't. So, for example, if the other team scores and all of a sudden somebody on your team inbounds the ball to someone else on your team or to yourself, you're just going. In tennis, you know, a guy can hit a shot, a winner, or you can make an error, and then there's that 20, 30 seconds between the next point, and you're just thinking, like, what did I do wrong? Like, how did I let that – that ball get behind me or the other perspective is you start questioning yourself like all right like I'm not winning I'm not doing well and it's just a mental perspective where it's you versus you where basketball obviously you have you have teammates but in tennis it's it's just you and that's exactly it. that self-talk can be good or bad right oh. it makes me it reminds me of watching you know those Wimbledon tournaments those French opens as a kid and they always put the camera on the guy waiting awaiting the serve right and I'm always like what's going through his head <laughs> as that 110 120 mile an hour serve is about to come his way and so can, you're right I can tell you a lot of times what's coming what's going through the mind is is please don't have it go by me 120 mile an hour. <laughs> let me let me at least get my racket on it that's uh that's kind of what most goes through the mind but that's the other thing too with tennis is it's you never know what's coming not that in basketball you do but in tennis you know you could be totally thinking one thing and all of a sudden you're like nope that's not what happened yep that's that's uh and that's something we're going to talk about here as we go on into this conversation because you when you got out of college you actually continued uh tying your love to sports by coaching you coached a little aau ball a little high school ball and even coached at the university of bridgeport as an assistant basketball coach uh, in, in, uh, in Connecticut, where, as we talked about offline, the home of the former college of Minute seven foot seven ball, Minute ball. So for the diehard basketball fans out there, Chris was the assistant coach at the same college, a little after Minute ball, a little after his time. And I know you've had some interactions with him, uh, in the past, which had to be a pretty cool experience. Yeah, you know, he's he's an un he was, excuse me, he passed a couple of years ago. What an unbelievable guy. We had the opportunity being the basketball staff. He came back a couple of times to visit. He spoke to our team, but we always did our athletic golf events every year and just an unbelievable guy. Everybody wanted to take pictures with him and just he was he was you know, the main attraction all the time, but just such a nice guy. And he always spoke to everybody and he did in such a respectful way that, you know, you could really tell that he was raised in a good way. Yeah. Awesome. Well, let's talk about the coaching aspect. Moving from AAU high school and then to college, did you notice a difference in the way you coached based on Let's call it the age of the kid because, you know, an AAU, you could, you could be coaching a, a middle school, high school kid. High school, you're obviously coaching a 15 to 18-year-old. And then in college, you're starting to coach guys who are at that point young men, right? Did you notice a, a difference at all in the style of how you had to coach? Yeah, you know, you- yeah, and that's, that's, a, that's a powerful question. And you definitely notice it as far as how you have to coach. But the other thing for me, and I actually coached, ironically, AAU first then college second, and then I went back mm. to, to high school. So for me, it was a very interesting dynamic of 
I took a team from rising seventh graders to rising seniors in high school. Then I coached college basketball. Then I went back and coached a um, high school basketball. But the perspective is not so much just how you coach them, but also how they need to be coached in the sense of how they listened and what resonated with them. And, and for me, that was always a challenge because you didn't know. And what I mean by that is kids don't wear signs on their head and say, look, you know, you got to be like Bobby Knight with me, or you need to be, you know, very philosophical with me. You had to figure that out more oftentimes kind of trial by fire in the sense of, you know, like if I said to you, Andy, let's get going. And like, I'd see that you kind of deer in headlights didn't really work. You know, I'd figure out, okay, Andy's not the guy that I'm going to scream at or in front of the team. Like you got to do a better job. It's pulling, pulling you to the side deck. All right, Andy, like, you know, next next play down, you know, make sure you set the screen and come off. And and that for me is the fun perspective of, of coaching because it's, it's so different, not only with each kid, but also with each age group. And a 16 year old kid is going to learn and think very differently than an 18, 19, 20 year old. And especially when they're playing at the collegiate level versus high school or AAU. And you were coaching what years again, were you coaching roughly? Um, 2000, 2099 to 2000 up until 2014, 2015. Okay. Did you, that, this is where I wanted to go with this. You know, we've heard the old conversations in the corporate room, in the, in the, in the boardroom these days about these millennials, these Gen Z kids. <laughs> did you see a change in the type of kid you coach from 1999 to 2014? Yeah, that's, that's a, such an interesting question in, in many ways, but yeah, I think the, the way in which millennials get, I don't want to say termed by, by companies and individuals, it's, it's got its pros and cons. But for me, the thing that I saw was the, the work ethic was a little bit different and it wasn't that they didn't work hard and it does, and it's not one of these, you know, back when our parents, you know, their grandparents went to skill, went to school uphill both ways in the snow somehow, which I still don't understand how you can go to school uphill both ways, but um, just the way in which they learned and the way in which technology was moving changes your mindset in regard to other things. And the one thing that I, I know I'm going to, I'm going to date myself, but was really interesting, but also challenging was the technology. Um, kids always having phones. Uh, and that to me was, was interesting because when I was coaching AU and then um, college basketball first, it wasn't that way. And, and the last two years when I was coaching high school, that was something that I had to adjust to because it was almost like in some ways you were, you know, vying for their time and like, Hey Andy, could you put your phone down so we could talk about the team or, that's cool. Send your text message or your, you know, do your social media post. And, and I say that in a joking way, but it's something that we all deal with. And I do a lot of speaking now with businesses that have a lot of millennials because people need to understand that just because somebody thinks something about a generation, it's not always true. But secondly, you have to ask the questions to your employees, which going back to my comment about working and finding out how people need to be coached. It's the same way, whether you're in a business setting, in a basketball setting, and I think a lot of times in today's day and age, we don't ask enough questions how to really, and we also don't, and companies and businesses don't really take the time to get to know their employees or their players as well as I think they should. Well, and something that came to my mind as you were saying that was I had a, 
a few weeks ago, a gentleman by the name of Andre Young on the podcast, who's got a training coaching company called You Evolving Now. And he uses the phrase, get great, catch people getting great. Mm. And I think, you know, this, this new generation, the younger generation, I feel like as a coach, you probably might have to do a little more catching them getting great. You know, those positive reinforcement type statements that maybe we had to do 20, 25 years ago. I know, I think that's often why you see a lot of the coaches who coached back in the eighties and nineties. I don't know if they'd last today based on the way they coached because it, you ju- that style just doesn't fly anymore. Would you agree with that statement? I think that's a fantastic statement. I, I agree a hundred percent. And and one of the things that I talk about too, which you just touched on briefly is I think 10, 15, 20 years ago, coaches and both in business and in sports used to focus on the negatives. You know, Andy, you can't do this. Andy, you got to be there. And, and Chris, you got to do this as opposed to catching them doing something the right way and focusing on that. And I think too many people, focus on the negatives and what happens it it almost has a you know a double negative where now that person is only focusing and only thinking about messing up or mistakes and adjustments as opposed to going for their greatness and really trying to excel and i think it you can see that both in business and in sports let's get to the uh mental side of this as a coach you know when you look at a high school basketball game some kids, let's face it, it could be easy to look at the court and say, okay, some kids at that age could just get by with raw talent, right? Like that is why they are so good at, at, and above and beyond, head and shoulders beyond anybody else. You know, I think of LeBron James when he was in high school. I still I still remember to tuning into that game when they first aired his game on ESPN. And I remember Jay Billis saying, hands down, this is the greatest college, high school basketball player I have ever seen. But when you look at those kids that are ha- uh, head, and he- head, and, uh, head and heels, above everybody else in talent. I got to believe there's something going on mentally as well. Yeah, you know, the the term mental midgets comes comes out a lot when people talk about the players that can only perform with their athleticism or their raw talent, and eventually it gets caught up to them. For me, when you can see a kid, male or female, that's just, you know, beyond everybody else, The question I always ask myself kind of is, you know, what's going to happen in a year or two when the other people catch up, whether it's height, whether it's muscle, whether it's skill. And for me, I look for those little intangibles as I'm watching people, you know, what else can they do? You know, obviously they're, you know, taller, they're stronger, they're faster, they can shoot better. But what about the other things? Are they talking on defense? Are they seeing things happen? And for me, it's what I talk about a lot is the things that don't show up in the box score that you can really tell a lot about a player's mental perspective of where they are and do they really understand the game more so than just being a freak athlete. Well, and that's such a good perspective because I think about playing college baseball. And there were guys that came in from high school that were three times as talented as I was, but maybe they got by with just pure raw talent back in high school. And now they're playing at with guys at the same level as them. And if they don't have the mental toughness, those were the athletes, men and women that showed up at college. And you're like, how did that individual fizzle out? Mm. They were so good when they came in, you know? And I think that's a really good point because now there's such an emphasis on what happens off the court or off the field or off the rink where not that you need to spend, you know, all the time in the weight room and on the court and then four hours off the court doing all this mental training. But to your point, we all know so many people that we played with or against that sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade were just here and we eventually caught up to them. And when we both got to the same level, the advantage a lot of times people 
had is is the mental side of the mindset and the approach. And at the college level, let's be very let's be very clear. Everybody is skilled. You know, everybody has talent. You don't get to college, whether division one, two or three, if you can't play your sport. But what what's the extra, you know, and, and what happens when the game's on the line and mentally, you know, you're prepared for it as opposed to someone else who up to that point really only relied on his or her athletic skill. Well, and I, I couldn't agree any, uh, I couldn't agree more because the only reason I gave myself a chance, Chris, to play pro baseball was because of my mindset. It had nothing to do with my, I was five foot nine, 165 pounds. That is not what I would call the size you want for a pitcher. I did not throw 98 miles an hour, but it was that mental toughness of the stuff you do. I love what you just said, because this is where we're going. All the stuff you do off the field. And so now let's, let's segue into your business. No quit living. I got so many questions I want to ask about that and how the whole mindset of athlete in bit, you know, the athlete on the field and the athlete in the boardroom. Tell us just a little bit about no quit living. Yeah, it's a, it's a cool story about the name. I'm a huge quote guy and, and up, I think at my highest, I was probably subscribed to seven or eight different, you know, quotes of the day and they just would fly in every day. But it was a famous quote by Dr. Norman Vincent Peale, which I know you've seen is it's always too early to quit. I went ahead and got the license plate, no quit. I've had it now, I think on four or five different cars. But for me, what I realized early on is the difference between good and average versus, you know, great and the best is that mental mental perspective of I'm not going to give up. When I get knocked down, I'm going to get back up. If I get knocked down again, I'm going to get back up stronger or more educated or in a better position next time. And both on the court and in the business sense, and even in, in schools that we do some work with with kids through the, the Positivity Tribe and, and some of those programs, you just see that people have something within them. And, and I think it can be taught, but I also think it can be increased where you get that that idea of I'm getting knocked down, but I'm going to get back up and it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be overnight, but I want to learn to become the better version of me. And I realized that everybody has a no quit story within, within mm -hmm. them. And I, that's one of the questions I ask in my podcast and people usually jokingly say, well, which, which story do you want to hear, Chris? The one from this week, last week, the biggest one, the best one. And it's kind of funny in some ways, but it, it really got me into the whole concept of the, of my business and my coaching is that the most successful people in all walks of life, professional sports, business entrepreneurs, you, you name the field, you name, you name the, the demographics. They all have failed more than they've succeeded, but they get back and they come back and they learn and they improve. And, and I didn't understand that aspect early on when I was, naming the company No Quit Living. I, obviously, I knew some of that from sports and things, but just being able to interview and work with some amazing companies and teams, I've just seen that it's not about winning all the time. It's not about always being perfect. It's about all the little things we can control. And I talk often about controlling the controllables. One of the things I'm fascinated with is trying to get 1% better today than you were yesterday. Let's talk about that because I think right now, as we have this conversation in February 2021, there's a lot of people who probably feel like they're losing a lot. Right. And they hit that call it the no quit moment, the rock bottom moment. What advice would you give them? You talk about controlling the controllables. I think that's so important. We focus on that right now because there's so much out here that is not in our control right now. So for that individual who's listening in and, and saying, yeah, I am there right now. What advice would you give them? Yeah, I think that's a that's a very 
on point question, especially what we're dealing with uh, in 2021 and also obviously having 2020 being a tough year. I was preparing for a pretty large event in New York City a couple of years ago I was speaking at and I was putting together my deck and I was always listening to a bunch of motivational stuff and this video by Jocko Willing came came on and I was kind of doing my preparation and he spoke about just, you know, don't give in today. Don't throw, don't throw in the white towel today. And it hit me because what he didn't say was he didn't say, don't ever give up, keep going today. And for the next 6,000 days straight, he said, just don't give up today. You know, you know, don't give up today. You know, don't throw in that white towel. And I realized that that's what people need to hear now is it doesn't mean you're never going to give up. It doesn't mean you don't ever stop anything, you know, going to bankruptcy, you know, all things like that. But it means that we all can get, get through today. You know, there's this saying, which I know you've seen, we've all made it through 100% of our bad days or 100% of our worst days. But what people need to hear today is the importance of finishing today. You know, it doesn't mean that you're going to make tomorrow or the next day perfect, but don't give up today. You know, you might be having a tough time business, professional, maybe with a spouse or a significant other, but just keep going today and try to have a 1% win today. And I talk about that often, that 1% mm. is, it's not about being perfect and it's not about making a million dollars right this second. But you know what? You have 10 sales calls this afternoon, you know, try to give your perfect effort on all 10, 10 calls. Doesn't mean you're going to go 10 for 10, but try to be perfect with your effort and with your attitude and your mindset. And I think for me, we always talk about the PMA, that positive mental advantage. And I think that's something that we all can control. I can't control what you're going to say to me. I can't control what you're going to ask me, but I can control my positive mindset, my positive attitude. And what we ultimately teach our clients is a positive mental advantage where you can't control anything that you can't control, but between your two ears, you can control that. And it's something that I think in 2021, we need to really focus on more, but also understand more. There's so many nuggets in what you just said. Um, you know, celebrating small wins, I mm -hmm. think, is something everybody needs to do, especially today. I, I, go, I look back, one of, the, my, one of my vices as, as an athlete and in, in early in my business career was not celebrating the wins, right? Once you won, you're on to the next win. I, I used this in a podcast a, a couple of months ago. Guys like Michael Jordan were lauded because they'd win a title. And what were they doing the next morning? They already forgotten about the title and they're lifting and getting ready for the next season. Nick Saban wins another national championship next morning. He's out recruiting. And I'm like, that's good. But at the same time, you got to celebrate mm. the accomplishment. Now those are massive accomplishments, right? The NBA title or, or the national championship in football, but even the small wins right now. And the other thing you said that hit home for me, Chris was I, I'm going through this with my own coach right now is no matter what happens to you in a given day, you can always figure it out. And she always, she's so good at asking that question. Is there ever been a moment in your life where you have not figured it out? Mm. For most, the answer is no, I've always figured it out. Then what are you worried about? I, I absolutely love that. And, and to touch on what you said, just it hit me. The, the Nick Saban example and Michael Jordan is that's something that we see. And I think social media destroys it now in technology where it's to your point, it's Nick Saban wins a college NCAA championship and purposely or not purposely the next day there's an article or there's a post in social media of hey nick's back on the road and you know he's going to see four recruits today so what does that do to the outside that then totally changes the narrative of it was great to win for that four hours and 12 minutes but what's nick saban doing and michael jordan won his nba championship and now he's jumping on dream team and he's heading out to the olympics and 
again, nothing wrong with, with anything in regards to winning and wanting to win, but we don't celebrate those wins. And I think the other thing I would say to that too is not only do we not celebrate those small wins, and I have a saying that small wins lead to huge victories, but we also lament those losses too much. So, for example, we'll celebrate a win for you know a couple hours and then we're on to something else, but then we're going to focus on that loss for two days, three days, four days. So the dynamic totally changes. So think about it from a kid's perspective. Like I'm watching Nick Saban. I'm a 12-year-old kid, and I'm like, oh, he won. That's great. And then I open up my phone the next day, and I'm like, oh, Nick's, you know, Nick's out recruiting. And then you know, rewind a couple weeks, they lose a game, and that's all everybody's talking about. Alabama should fire Nick Saban, and it's over. So from a, from a perspective, you're like, wait a second. So he loses, and the world's ending for two weeks on end, but then he wins, and it's almost like, all right, that's great. What are you doing tomorrow? What are you doing right this minute? And I think you do have to celebrate those wins, and you also need to – acknowledge and address the losses so you can come back better. That's awesome. I, I, yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. And especially as we've been talking about today, more than ever, what are some of the secret ingredients you see now that you're coaching businesses and coaching teams in the boardroom? What's, what are some of the secret ingredients that you get to witness and watch in winning business teams that may quite frankly, also be the same key that you saw on the basketball court. What, what the, you know, what it took to be a winning team on the basketball court. You know, the word, the word that I often talk about when I do speaking and coaching for not only businesses, but also sports teams is the word culture. And I know it sounds good from the outside. And I know a lot of people throw the, oh, well, they have a winning culture or in New York Yankees, you know, they have, you know, they have a winning culture and they've won 26 or 28 or however many World Series. And I never really understood that until I took some time to digest it, but then do a little bit of research. And what I see with businesses too, is it goes back to defining a goal. And I think one of the areas where we fall short in the United States is when we're in first or second grade or even kindergarten, we always get asked the question, what do you want to be when you get older? So if I'm your teacher, Andy, what do you want to be? And, and it's always, I want to be a baseball player or a policeman or the president. But then we get into fifth, sixth grade and it becomes more this is what I have to do. I have my PSATs and then we have our SATs and then we have to get ready for high school and, and then we have to get ready for college and then we have to get ready for, and we lose the idea of dreaming big and setting goals. But the teams and the, and the corporations that do really well are the ones that have specific goals and they have a culture based on being specific with what their targets are. And Zig Ziglar had a famous quote is you can't hit a target you cannot see. And it sounds very cliche, but it's so true. And, and I think one of the things I like to do with my clients is, you know, identify their culture. What is your culture or what do you want your culture to be within this company or team? And then secondly, what goals do you want to achieve individually as well as with the team or as well as a sales unit? But then most importantly, is how are you going to track those measures? How are you going to track, the, track those metrics? But more importantly, going back to what you said is, you know, celebrate a win. You know, it's important to acknowledge success along the way. It doesn't mean after you get a sale, you know, you celebrate for a week and you, and you don't come to work, but it means acknowledge it, address it, but then move forward. And, and I think so many times people look at, you know, I just want to be a champion or I just want to make the playoffs. And it's something that I say, well, we'll take it a step further is what does that mean to you? Does that mean your team, let's say NFL has to get to nine wins? Okay. If that's the case, then let's aim for five home wins and four on the road. How are we going to track them? 
out of our 16-game schedule, where do we think we're going to be able to get those wins from? And, and when you break them down into those bite-sized pieces, yes, it's a big it's a big goal at the end. The successful teams and companies that I get a chance to work with and witness are the ones that really are very specific in how they do that. That's um, the sport nut in me goes in so many directions. You know, we, <laughs> just, we were just talking about Michael Jordan, right? There's a huge difference between talent and culture. You know, that 98 Bulls team, yeah, they still won the title. But if you watch the the, the series um, Last Dance, Last Dance, they were a shit show. That culture was terrible. Same, I would actually put the same, uh, apply it to the end of the Golden State Warriors dynasty here. You know, they had Durant, they had Curry, they had Tom, they had all those guys. But then inside, you'd hear some of the locker room talk and you're like, things aren't as good as you think they are. I, I, I have to interject for a second because... I just, I mean, I nodded about five times during what you're saying is if you look at the Golden State Warriors on paper, if you took their, not just their starting five, but their entire team, including their coaching staff, the average fan who knows basketball well, and I'm talking about who knows the NBA game well, would would say this team should never lose. They should go 82-0. and um, To me, that's a little bit over the top. But you hit it on the head. Just because you have the most talent – does not mean that you are going to be unbeatable. And when you have issues in the locker room, in the huddle, off the court, in the weight room, but the other thing is you have those those issues in the media, it doesn't matter how good your team is on paper. I truly feel you will lose, and they ultimately did. And ultimately, look what happened to the team. Some guys stepped away. And it wasn't because you know, being in Golden State, it wasn't a good place. They have arguably one of, if not the best arenas in the business. It's beautiful weather out in California, but it was all the other stuff mm-hmm. that didn't gel. And and I think you just said it before, and, and I'm, I'm so glad you said it because being the best physically active, being the tallest, being the strongest, that's good in some ways. But what happens inside? Are you a mental midget or do you have the men- – mental perspective to say, okay, we just got thrown a curveball when we were totally expecting a fastball. Is this going to completely change our season or are we going to be able to adapt? And and I, I just think what you said was was powerful. And and it's something that people need to think about, not only in business or sports, excuse me, but in business as well. You could have the best product or one of the better products, but everything internally is just complete, you know, chaos, you're not going to win. You might win a sale. You're definitely going to win a game here or there. But look at the Golden State Warriors. They did not win the NBA championship, and ultimately they dismantled that team. Well, and flip side, I think there's nothing more dangerous in sports than a team with a great culture and nothing to lose. Mm-hmm. You know, I think about uh, – I had Joel Goldberg on the podcast a few weeks ago. He is the pre- and post-game announcer for the Kansas City Royals. The Royals were a disaster for a long, long time, and then they ended up in the World Series in 14 and 15, won it in 15, and he's told a story about the day he met Drayton Moore um, – or Dayton Moore, excuse me, who is the general manager. And but the day he took over the job with the Royals, he said, I'm going to build an amazing culture. Mm. And it makes me think about the Oakland A's of the past. Oakland, nobody realizes, again, if you're a true baseball fan, the A's have had more consistent success as a small market team than most teams in baseball. Why? Their culture is phenomenal. I remember the article in Sports Illustrated when they had Barry Zito, Eric Burns, Mark Muller. Those guys loved each other. And so I couldn't agree with you more uh, about the – the importance of culture in business. I see it in the insurance world where I come from. People think it's about hiring talent. Go hire the, the guy from, from this big insurance agency that sold all this business. Well, if he's not a good fit for a culture, it's not going to work. 
it's it's so important that you said that, and I think hopefully listeners or viewers take that is is culture is is something that is so important. But the one thing I, I wanted to just touch on when you give your example of the Kansas City Royals was nobody said. I'm changing the culture today and tomorrow we're going to be the champions. And the one thing that I, that I do have to say is, especially in sports and even in business, is they bring in a superstar general manager from this in the business world or to your point in the insurance world, they bring in the most amazing insurance salesperson and they automatically assume that, okay, because he's here, she's here, you know, we're going to, you know, snap our fingers and overnight we're going to be a success. And the same thing in sports is you bring in a stud athlete, female or male to a team that's maybe okay or average. And then right away, it's like, oh, well, he or she's going to overnight change the culture and we're going to be champions tomorrow. No, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't look that way. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of, and also the beast when it comes to this social media and everybody mm-hmm. expects things overnight. And I'm not saying it's, it's going to be a five or 10 year, but you look at so many sports coaches, both collegially and professionally, they get hired with the idea of, and what do they talk about in their first press conference? You know, we're going to build a championship culture and we have the, you know, the right players in place and we get one or two more and, you know, we're going to be really destined for success and they don't win immediately and they get fired. And you look at some of these programs, both professionally and collegiately, it's just been turnover after turnover and they wonder why, well, we're not winning. And I don't understand. You're like, well, you've had six coaches in the last nine years and your boosters and your, you know, your fundraisers are up in arms because, you know, they have to pay these payout contracts and they bring somebody in and like, well, how come we didn't win overnight? Be like, cause success doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, no. And what you said about Dayton Moore and the Royals, I think he took over in 07, maybe 08. And they didn't see that that World Series appearance until 14, 15, six, seven years later. So your point about is it takes time to build that culture is so true. Let's let's uh, bring it on home here. The final third of the podcast talking about two things that are near and dear to your heart. You've got the book Positivity Tribe. In fact, you wrote a couple parts to it, right? You have parts two and three that just came out. What does that mean to you? Why did you write it? Yeah, a really interesting story. But in February and March of 2020, I was actually writing my first other book, um, which is uh, the title of that one is Addition by Subtraction. And we dealt with this pandemic that just literally came in and, and hit everybody, both within the United States as well as throughout the world. And I have a men's uh, mastermind group that we started. We um, meet on Zoom every Tuesday night. We have not missed a Tuesday night since the pandemic started. Um, since holidays and everything, but we coined ourselves the Positivity Tribe. And in the, the middle to the end of 2019, I started spreading, um, I have them just to show these positivity notes, literally just the top and the bottom are typed out. And then the, the middle part is blank. And we just use Sharpies and we write positive quotes or messages. And we started leaving them all throughout Westchester County, New York and Fairfield County, Connecticut. And doing it with zero expectations of what's going to happen. It wasn't for, okay, I want to be famous or I want to make money on it. And what happened is people started posting them or reposting them. And we've now spread over 14,000 positivity notes in, I think, 41 or 42 states, six countries. And I have to emphasize the we part because in no way, shape or form am I flying to five other countries and driving to 42 states. But what I realized was positivity is contagious. And just as negativity is contagious, I've seen a a dynamic shift in the last six to eight months where people are focusing on the importance of saying, you know, we need to do this and stronger together or some type of positive reaffirming 
mission or message. And we use the hashtag all the time, we rise by lifting others up. And I think so many people don't realize that celebrating somebody else's success does not in any way, shape or form limit or eliminate your success. And we need to get rid of that in this, in our world. And not only in the United States is celebrate other people, you know, cheer other people on in no way does it limit your success. You know, if you, if you're successful, why can't I call you up or text you or send you a, a message? And if, if I can, I want to share one thing that me and my publisher are doing is we created this, this idea, connect five, support 10. I initially got it from Jesse Itzler. I believe he does something with uh, three messages every day, but we've been doing it for the entire month of February and I'm going to continue to do it uh, longer. And I've been doing it a little bit longer, but connect five means you just connect with five people on a daily basis in a, in a genuine, genuine way. So it's not a text message like, yo, Andy, it's, it's something, whether it's a text message, a voice message, a phone call, um, an email, and just connect with those with five people. And the support 10 is, genuinely supporting 10 people. So for example, if I see you put out a post on social media about your podcast with whoever it is, Michael Jordan, I'm going to support you and say, Hey guys, check out my buddy Andy's, you know, latest interview. He did a fantastic job. So doing those things. So 10 of those and connect with five people. And I, I got to tell you, it's been unbelievable because as nice as it is to see somebody smile or respond in the positive way, I end up feeling, and, and my publisher, Dominic, has ended up feeling so much better about it, and it's been amazing. Well, and you you get you always get what you give, right? And I love what you said because I'll t- I'll admit for a while there I struggled with gratitude. Like, how can I show my gratitude for others? And for me, it was always like for some reason I, I defaulted to it must it must come from either time or money. Donate money, donate time. Um, but your point is is even when a peer put something out on social media, whether it's their podcast or a post, and you're like, man, the world needs to hear this. You supporting it by sharing it is a big way to show that gratitude. And here's what I love too, Chris, about what you're doing with those positivity notes. It plays right into what you have been practicing, which is celebrate one win at a time. You putting that positivity note on one dashboard or one windshield is celebrating one victory for one individual. You probably don't even know. Hmm. But because you've applied the consistency to it, you've now left, what, over 14,000 of those? I mean, that that's spreading positivity in the world. And that's actually one of the last questions I want to ask you is because we are surrounded by so much negativity right now, it is so easy to get enveloped in it and get wrapped up in it. How does someone bring more positivity to their life and to others right now? I love that. And, and we've been talking a lot about as a company – spreading positivity by muting negativity. And what I mean by that is people don't understand, I don't think, and I know for a fact I didn't, the algorithms that actually work within social media. So, so many people have said, well, if I go on to nike.com and I look at some shoes and click around, all of a sudden when I'm on Facebook, I'll see an ad for a sneaker or an Instagram, you know, and people don't really think what that means. You, do you think that there's an you know, invisible person behind you looking at you? No, it's the algorithms. So what people can do is stop spreading and focusing on the negativity. Stop commenting on the negative stuff. It doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge it or address it. It doesn't mean, for example, during this pandemic that you say, you know, COVID is fake and everybody is perfectly fine. No, but if you just focus on the statistics and just that, you're going to spread that. That's going to what's going to go on in your feed. It's what's going to go on other people's feed. So spread positivity by muting negativity. So spread uplifting messages. You know, if you put out a, a positive message or uh, a note on, on Instagram, 
why can't I repost that or share? So, hey, guys, check out my buddy Andy. Great quote today or great post. Now, all of a sudden, somebody else is going to see that. I'm going to tag you. I'm going to tag somebody else. And with with different hashtags and, and different things like that, you can really have that impact. And and you talked about, you know, one small wins, small victories and one positivity note. That's our objective as a company is to have a positive impact on one person every single day. And the first day or two, it's not like you're changing the world. And that's not what we're trying to do, change the world. But all of a sudden, I have a positive impact on your life and you go home to a spouse or a family member or to work. And now all of a sudden that genuine positive message or or statement now positively potentially impacts 10 people and you compound it over a week or two weeks. Now all of a sudden we're doing it. And I think the other thing people don't realize is the power of social media. And when I say the power, I'm talking about in in a positive way. If you have a positive message out there, don't focus on just the likes. Don't focus how many views you get on something, how many comments you get. Focus on genuinely really trying to put something out there because what we don't know about social media is we see who likes it. We see who comments on it. We see who shares it. We have no idea who sees it and they don't comment on it or they don't like it or they don't share it. And maybe that one person was having their worst day or was contemplating suicide or leaving their husband or wife or something disastrous, but they saw a positive uplifting message. And now they said, you know what? I'm going to keep going. And back to my Jocko comment early on is I'm not going to give up today. I'm not going to commit to the next 50 years, but I'm sure as heck not giving up today. Well, and to wrap it up on that social media uh, context, I mean, I've heard Gary Vee say it like the social media platforms are empty. We fill it with our positivity or our mm-hmm. negativity. You always get to choose. Don't blame social media. We are the ones filling it. <laughs> I, you know, that's such a powerful point. And if anyone listens to anything or takes anything from this, hopefully they took more than just that last comment. But but what you just said, Andy, is, is spot on is when you when you have an Instagram account and you create your Instagram account, you have zero followers, you're following zero people, and you have zero posts. So it's a blank slate. So think about that for a second. And, and if you really want to l- look at that self-accountability mirror, look at the posts that you've made, look at the ones that you've shared. And, and then I'll show you, you know, are you spreading positivity or maybe are you adding some fuel to the negativity fire? Yeah. So let's wrap it up here, Chris. If somebody wants to get a hold of you, whether it's to hire you for your coaching and training, speaking, grab a hold of Positivity Tribe or one of those positivity notes, what is the best way to get in touch with you? Awesome. I I really, really appreciate that. I give out my personal email address to everybody on every podcast I do because I love connecting with new people. My email address is chris at noquitliving.com. We are active on our website, noquitliving.com. Also, thepositivitytribe.com. You can get the book there or you can get the book anywhere that books are sold. And as far as the positivity notes, we have thousands of them. We ship them, mail them directly to you. The only question is, do you want us to pre-fill them or do you want blank ones? But it doesn't cost you anything. All we need is your name and an address. And the only request is you just help us spread some positivity, one person and one note at a time. Here's what I want to do, Chris, too. If anybody's listening in and you and I are connected, all you got to do is go to my LinkedIn, go to my Instagram, shoot me a DM with the word positivity, mm-hmm. and I will be sending you a copy of one of those books myself. So the first 10 people that do that, Chris, I will uh, I will arrange with you to get a book out to them if that's cool with you. That is phenomenal. And I appreciate that uh, more than you know. And uh, I uh, I will double that as well if anybody wants to reach out to me as well. So Awesome. 
That's awesome, man. Well, here, guys, I hope you were taking notes. This was absolutely phenomenal. You know, Chris, I think the, the message here is very clear. Um, winning teams, whether it's on the court or in, in the boardroom, come down to culture, a positive culture. It's not about talent. If it were just about talent on paper, couldn't we argue Manu Bull should have been the greatest basketball player ever? He was 7'7". He was the tallest. You should have been the greatest. And so that's just not the case. It's about culture, guys. So you have choices every day to spread, spread positivity or negativity. And I think Chris and I both agree. We hope you know what you should be spreading. And last but not least, guys, when you get that clarity and you mix it with that confidence, you know what happens. Massive action happens. Go make it happen today. Thanks, Chris. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening into this week's episode. And if you know of any other high achievers like yourself that you think would benefit from this episode, please do me a favor. Please share this with them. You would help me go a long way in sharing this message, getting this message out to as many people as possible. I'd be forever grateful. And if you really found benefit from today's episode, do me a favor. Go subscribe to the podcast. Give it a five-star rating. Leave a great review. It always helps to make sure that this podcast is getting in front of as many ears and eyeballs as possible. Thank you.